The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 13 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC13. This is Secret Church 13, Episode 8. Gospel points us, yes, to the horror of hell, and the gospel points us to the hope of heaven, to the good news. But, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And I love these quotes. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above. And it makes sense. J.C. Ryle says, the man who's about to sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is, a natural, is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climates, employments, inhabitants, its ways, its customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him. You're leaving the land of your nativity. You're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now surely if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, Hebrew says, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it. Before we get to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Edwards says it becomes us to spend this life not only as a journey toward heaven to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? So let's contemplate heaven. Now as we think about heaven, we need to hold fast to biblical revelation. We've talked about this. We're going to look at passages that talk about how does scripture describe heaven. Now 1 Corinthians 2 makes clear to us we don't know everything about heaven. We won't know a lot of things about heaven until we get there. As it's written, no no eye has seen, no ear has heard, but the heart of man imagined. God has prepared those who love him. But notice, even that passage, the God by his Spirit, has revealed much to us. So we need to hold fast to Spirit-inspired biblical revelation. Second, we tread carefully into theological speculation. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We're God's children now, 1 John says, and what we will be is not yet Peter, but when... That when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. So the Bible, here again, there's clarity on some things we do know. And there's questions about things we don't know when it comes to heaven. And so there's places for speculation. And I was helped so much in my study for tonight by this quote from Millard Erickson in his Systematic Theology. He said, speculation is a legitimate theological activity as long as we're aware that we're speculating. So we're going to do some speculating. But we need to be aware when we are. And then even beyond theological speculation, we leave room for personal imagination, knowing that God is able to do and bring about far more than we can even ask, think, or imagine. But here we need to be careful. Imagination must never fly away from truth. Instead, imagination must always fly upon the truth. So we're going to do even a little imagination when it comes to heaven tonight. I hope, though, not flying away from truth, flying upon truth. So we're going to we got some revelation we'll hold fast to. We've got things we'll speculate about, wonder about, and then imagine even a little bit based on revelation. So, biblical revelation, heaven defined. When you read through Scripture, the actual word heaven is described in different ways. At some, point, heaven's, at some points, heaven refers to the expanse of God's creation. God created the heavens and the earth. So, it's God's creation. Other times, we see heaven actually used as a synonym for God's name. So not just God's creation, but God's name. You look at John 3, where John says, all that we receive, we receive from heaven. So the references to the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew, which is a synonym for the kingdom of God in the other gospels. So heaven's the expanse of God's creation, a synonym for God's name, and heaven is the place where God dwells. The throne of God is in heaven, Isaiah 66. I, Matthew chapter 6, our Father who art in heaven, in addition to other references in Matthew. According to scripture, angels come from heaven. The Son, Jesus, came from heaven. The Son returned to heaven, just we read in Acts chapter 1 earlier. In addition, the Son resides in heaven. Heaven's open, Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, Acts chapter 7. 
Jesus at the right hand of God, interceding for us, Romans chapter 8. In addition, like we talked about, the Son will return from heaven to come down. All of that leads to reality for followers of Christ, anticipating the return of Christ. We look forward to heaven. The Bible describes heaven as a city to come, whose designer and builder is God. Here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that's to come. Heaven's a country to come. We desire a better country, a heavenly one. And heaven is a kingdom to come. Which is ultimately what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. So these are the ways the Bible uses the word heaven. That's going to lead us then to what I've got here is a definition of the eternal heaven. So the Bible doesn't just talk about heaven as creation or synonym for God's name or as the place where God and Christ dwell now. But the Bible talks about the eternal heaven, the city, country, kingdom that we're looking forward to. And here's the way the Bible describes the eternal heaven where all those who have trusted in Christ will spend all of eternity. The eternal heaven is the new earth. The new earth where God and his angels will dwell with his people in unhindered communion and unimaginable joy. This is, this is anticipated, this new earth, anticipated in Isaiah 65, 17, Isaiah 66, talking about 2 Peter 3, and then you get Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So all the redemption is headed ultimate end of the gospel is a new heaven and a new earth coming down. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So follow this. The ultimate end of the gospel. So the end of the story here in the Bible. Our ultimate hope is not that we go to heaven when we die. That's not the ultimate end. Obviously we've talked about it. Intermediate state. As soon as we breathe our last breath here, we immediately enter the presence of God. But that's not our last stop. If, if that's all we're thinking about, we're making the rest stop a last stop. We don't want to stop at the rest stop. There's more to come. The Bible says that one day Christians will go to heaven when they die, be with God, intermediate state, but one day heaven's going to come down to earth. The ultimate end of the gospel is not that we will go to heaven, but that heaven will come to us. And this is key because the Bible gives us a very earthly picture of heaven. When the Bible describes the eternal heaven, it's not some ethereal, otherworldly picture where we're all sitting in, on clouds in the sky in some spirit world. No, the Bible describes a very earthly heaven, a new earth. Anthony Hockema puts it best. He says, God will make the new earth his dwelling place. Heaven and earth will then no longer be separated as they are now, but they'll be one. But to leave the new earth out of consideration when we think of the final state of believers is greatly to impoverish biblical teaching about the life to come. This is so key. When we realize this, we start to realize that in this sense, in this sense, there's no such thing as the end of the world. Because this world that's destined for eternal destruction is also destined for ultimate restoration, which leads to some careful questions we need to ask. We start to ask, will the earth as we know it be obliterated? And you look at verses like I've listed here, Psalm 102, Luke 21, Hebrews 1, 2 Peter 3. These verses seem to indicate that the earth will be obliterated. But then... We ask the question, is that what's going to happen? Or will the, new, the earth as we know it be restored? After all, everything that God made on the earth originally before sin entered in the world, he made as good. And we see verses like Ecclesiastes 1, Psalm 78, talk about how the earth will remain forever. So how do we, how do we square that with what we, read other, what we read in other verses about the earth passing away or being destroyed? I think Piper's comments are helpful here. He says, when Revelation 21, 2 and 2 Peter 3, 10 say the present earth and heavens will pass away, it does not have to mean that they go out of existence, but they may mean that there will be such a change in them that their present condition passes away. We might say the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. There's a real passing away and there's a real continuity, a real connection. What a helpful illustration. Does the caterpillar pass away? Well, yes. No. 
Because there's obvious continuity between the caterpillar and the butterfly. So in a similar way, so the analogy is not perfect, the earth will pass away, but a new earth will continue in a much grander, more beautiful way when God through Christ ultimately reconciles heaven and earth. And this is the end of the gospel. Russell Moore writes, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and declared it good. God does not surrender this good creation to Satan, but wins it back through the blood of Christ, which frees creation rulers, creation's rulers from the sentence of death for sin. When this happens, the book of Numbers says the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 11, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So then we start to ask, will the earth as we know it be the same? Oftentimes when the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about it in the language of Eden, of restoration back to the beauty of Eden, the garden of Eden. We see this in texts like Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 36. And then look what happened in Genesis 3. When, when man's sin was cast out of the presence of God, when sin marred creation, in this way, the Bible says, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim, a flaming sword, follow this, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So that's the beginning of the Bible. Man separated from the tree of life. End of the Bible, last chapter, eternal heaven being described. Look what John writes. The angel showed me the river, the water, of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamp through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, guess what you've got? Underline it, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree with the healing of the nations, no longer anything accursed. So this is a picture of restoration of the earth to its original picture of beauty back in Eden. I also put Genesis 2, 10 through 14 here because we see this picture of Eden with four rivers and it talks about the beauty of the onyx stone there in Eden in the middle of that passage. And interestingly, not by coincidence, when you get to Ezekiel chapter 28, you see the high priest's attire, He's commanded to wear two onyx stones as a memorial to Eden. These onyx stones are on the priest's shoulders that would recall imagery of Eden, remind the people of the hope to which they were looking forward. Then when you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verse 19 and 20, there's only one reference to onyx in all of the New Testament. You'll never guess where it is. The new Jerusalem, this new city is being described and you see this stone. So obviously there's continuity here between Eden and what we're looking forward to in the new heaven and the new earth. So in some ways, maybe many ways, it will be the same. But then we wonder, are there senses in which we will be different? Will the earth as we know it be the same or will the earth as we know it be different? And I think there's no question that in many ways, though it will be similar to Eden, it will be different. First of all, there's going to be a lot more than two people there. But just as the Christian life is described as new creation in which the old is past, the new has come, in a similar way, this is how we picture the new heaven and the earth, new earth. Old gone, new come. God reconciling all things to himself through Christ. So that's why we sing these lines from Isaac Watts. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Curse of sin will be gone, which will have a drastic effect on everything in all creation. Everything restored to God's beautiful and perfect design. That's what we're longing for. Remember the lines of this song? This is my father's world. Well, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems also strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven will be won. So I want to correct some misconceptions here. One, we need to realize that heaven is not non-earth, but new earth. Any picture of heaven as unearthly, talking about eternal heaven, any picture of heaven as unearthly is unbiblical. The earth is good and will be good forever. A new heaven and a new earth. That's the ultimate end of the gospel. Along these lines, heaven is not unfamiliar and otherworldly, but familiar and earthly. Just why Paul in Romans 8 talks about creation longing to be redeemed and restored. That's why Randy Alcorn said the gospel 
It's far greater than most of us imagine. It isn't just good news for us. It's good news for animals, plants, stars, and planets. It's good news for the sky above and the earth below. Heaven's not non-earth, but new earth. Not unfamiliar and otherworldly, but familiar and earthly. And as a result, heaven is not foreign, but home. So think about heaven not as some foreign, weird place, but it's home. An earthly place. It's thoroughly human. A.A. Hodge says, in its structure, conditions, and activities, joys and activities must be rational, moral, emotional, voluntary, and active. Exercise of all the faculties, the gratification of all tastes, the development of all talent capacities, the realization of all deals, which then leads us to the realization that heaven is not boring, but fascinating. Oh, this is so important. If we're honest, if we're really honest, when we think about heaven, we have a pretty boring picture of what it's going to be like. I mean, what are we going to do? Just stand around with each other and sing songs and stare at light for a few quadrillion years? Like, like what's, there's a hope in that. The answer Scripture gives, no. No, there's so much more to hope for. This is not an endless choir practice <laughs> that we're going to. This is a place where we're going to experience the fulfillment of all of our desires in a new earth, a complete earth. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Obviously, the implication here is another world where it will be satisfied. So ladies and gentlemen, heaven is not a place where we have nothing to do but float on the clouds, but a new earth where we have everything to do, a God to worship, a kingdom to rule, a universe to explore, a work to accomplish, and friends to enjoy. I put an excerpt here from Chronicles of Narnia. There's so much that C.S. Lewis writes that's imagination flying upon the truth of Scripture. But you read through this and how he describes Narnia in this conversation between Lucy and Edmund and Peter. Go back and read through that. I would do it. We just don't have time. But it is glorious picture, imagination of what this will be like. So let's envision heaven then. What the Bible describes is a place of, first of all, full reconciliation with God. Supremely, heaven is the place where we will dwell with God. And that's important. The way we talk, John 14, I put there, my father's house are many, and the King James Version says, in my father's house are many mansions. And so many people think about heaven in terms of mansions. Like, we're going to have all these mansions and all these great things that the world can, all the greatest things that world can, what matters about heaven? That word mansions, it's translated mansions there, is the same word that's used in Revelation 21 to describe dwelling places. The point of heaven is not, it's not all ultimately about all the stuff that it's there. Ultimately, it's about the one who is there. And everything that we experience will flow from him. All goodness in heaven flows from reconciliation with God. We will be with him where there is fullness of joy in his presence. And the imagery we've got in this in Scripture is so glorious. We'll be as priests in the temple. You know, it's interesting. When you see the temple with all of its various courts described in the Old Testament, you've got a court of Gentiles, a court of Jewish women, a court of Jewish, Jewish men, and the center is the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is a cube-shaped area, intentionally shaped as a cube, and that area Holy of Holies symbolizes the glory of God's presence dwelling in the middle of his people. Only the high, high priest on certain occasions can go into the Holy of Holies and he gets out as soon as he can because that's where God's glory dwells among his people. So when you get to Revelation 21, you read this. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square. It's linked the same with its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 city. It's linked and width and height are equal. And it goes on with measurements, and you look at the end of this passage, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now people read this, and I've, I've read commentaries, they start taking this, these measurements and saying, this is the architecture of what heaven's going to look like, and they figure out the numbers and calculate the measurements and envision this place accordingly. But that misses the point. 
Instead of being this literal picture of how high this or that's going to be, the painting here is a collision of Old Testament images. A city, a new heaven, a new earth, a bride, and a temple. You look at these measurements and you realize that heaven is shaped like a what? Like a cube. And you wonder, well, why would that be? And you think about the Old Testament temple. And you think about the Holy of Holies. And you realize there's no need for a temple of here because heaven is one giant Holy of Holies where we will dwell as priests in the presence of God. Oh, it's a great picture. Like priests in the temple as a bride with a husband. So here, again, it's imagery. What it's going to be like to be with God. Picture the expectant bride and groom coming together. I remember when I was standing in front of that church building, and I look in the back, and these doors swing open, and out steps this woman in white. And I'm like, wow, that's my wife. Like, Hurry up down the aisle. The joy of husband and wife coming together. This is how heaven is described, a place of union between a bride and a husband. We're like children with a father as heirs of a king. Our father's a king. He's waiting to give us a kingdom. You read through these verses, see that God's our sovereign king with a kingdom prepared for us where we will be with him. Like participants in a banquet. These are the ways that Scripture envisions us with God. We will be with him and we will behold him. Oh, We've got images, glimpses of this in Scripture. The Lord speaks with Moses, Exodus 33, face to face. The man speaks with his friend. friend. You've got the psalmist saying, one thing I long for, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And then you get to Revelation chapter 22, verse 4, and it's five of the most beautiful words in all the Bible. Maybe the five most beautiful words in all the Bible. They will see his face. I love what Randy Alcorn says. He says, not only will, they see, will we see his face and live, but we will likely wonder if we ever lived before we saw his face. Can't you? Don't you long for the day when we will see his face? We will be with God. We will behold him. We will worship him. John writes of heaven, After this I heard what seemed like the great voice of a multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor belong to our God. We'll gather for corporate worship. So there's clearly singing and worship. We'll shout as we consider God's incomprehensible works. We'll sing as we behold God's incomparable worth. But we'll not just gather for corporate worship in heaven. The picture is we will live in continual worship in heaven. So just like 1 Corinthians 10 exhorts us, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So in heaven, this is going to be a reality. Everything we do, everything, eating and drinking, living and breathing and working and relating to people around us, everything will be done to the glory of God. So don't just think about singing when you think about eternal worship. Think about living. Cornelius Venema writes, No legitimate activity of life, whether marriage, family, business, play, friendship, education, politics, escapes the claims of Christ's kinship. Certainly those who love and live and reign with Christ forever will find the diversity and complexity of their worship of God not less but richer in the life to come. Every legitimate activity of new creaturely life will be included within the life of the worship of God's people. We will worship God. We will serve Him. Day and night, Revelation 7 says. Jesus pictures heaven as the reward of a good master for his servants in Matthew chapter 25. We will serve him. Again, heaven, not an endless choir practice. It's not just sitting around all day either. Indeed, we're going to work just as Jesus worked to the glory of Father when he was on earth. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, when sin came into the world, there was a, there was a curse upon the work of man on the ground. With the picture in Revelation 2 is no more curse. The curse is gone. So there will be work that we'll do, but we'll do it with the joy of God or the glory of God. We'll do work, but it won't be lab- laborious and burdensome to us. It will be a delight to us. 
You know that sensation when you're working in some way. Maybe it's not even your job. Maybe it is. Maybe it's something totally different. And you're working in some way. You're doing something. And you have a sense of joy while you're doing it. Even fulfillment. You're thinking, man, I'm good at this. I actually enjoy doing that. Now, transfer that kind of feeling into every kind of work you're doing. And you have a picture of serving, working in the glory of God. But not only will we serve God, watch this. We will be served by God. When Jesus talks about heaven, he talks about our master serving us, Luke 12. Just as he came to serve us, Mark 10, John 13. Old Testament prophesies for the people of God. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, a rich, full and, rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Oh, in heaven we'll be served by God. We will reign with God. So follow this. God created us in Genesis 1 to have dominion over all of creation. So... Randy Alcorn writes, God's intention for humans was that we would occupy the whole earth and reign over it. This dominion would produce God-exalting societies in which we would exercise the creativity, imagination, intellect, skills befitting creatures made in God's image, therefore manifesting his attributes. Obviously, when sin entered the world, that marred our leadership and our dominion over creation. But then you look at the hope of heaven and you see this, this picture of restoration and dominion, the kingdom and the dominion, the greatest of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints most high, Daniel 7, 27. And you see that reflected all the way down to Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What a promise. We will, we will work with Christ and we will reign. We will work with Christ. We will work. We will reign with Christ. And then next in your notes there, we will rest in God. This picture of rest that we see in Scripture, God resting on the Sabbath day. Genesis 2, God commanding his people to rest on the Sabbath day. Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. Leviticus 25. Then you get to Hebrews and you, say there remain, you see there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the picture of Sabbath there is a rest from striving in this world of sin and suffering. Which is key when you go back to Old Testament imagery. And you see, the Bible says that David as king couldn't build a temple for the Lord because he didn't have rest from the adversaries that surrounded him. But Solomon did. So Solomon built a place apart from adversaries advancing, misfortune attacking. Solomon built this place called the temple. So when you get to Revelation chapter 14, you see blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors. We will no longer strive against sin and suffering in this world. So based on all this, we'll be with God, we'll behold God, we'll worship God, we'll serve God, we'll be served by God, we'll reign with God, we'll rest in God. Based on a biblical understanding of heaven as a place of reconciliation with God, to long for heaven is to long for who? It's to God, long for God, to love heaven biblically. In a right understanding of heaven as a place of reconciliation with heaven, to love heaven is to love God. To fill your heart and mind with truth about heaven is to fill your heart and mind with truth about God. And based on that, to think unworthy thoughts of heaven is to think unworthy thoughts of who? Of God. This is why we need to think well and wisely about heaven because how we think about heaven is ultimately a reflection of how we think about God. If we think heaven's boring, then that exposes the reality that we ultimately think God is boring. If we think heaven is glorious and good, then we will think that God is glorious and good. So let's think worthy thoughts of heaven. In the process, think worthy thoughts of God. Heaven, a place of full reconciliation with God. Second, heaven is a place of final resurrection for our bodies. We've discussed this already, so we'll go even quicker through here. Based on 1 Corinthians 15, all we've seen, we will be raised spiritually, entirely spirit-filled, which means we will be completely free from sin. Nothing unclean in heaven. Don't you long for the day when we'll be free from sin. According to Revelation, we'll be perfectly robed in righteousness, completely untouched by temptation. 
Not only free from sin, but free from any temptation to sin. We'll be utterly free to obey. Oh, I love this. Paul Helm said the freedom of, of heaven then is the freedom from sin. But not that the believer just happens to be free from sin, but that he is so constituted or reconstituted that he cannot sin. He doesn't want to sin. And he does not want to want to sin. Oh, I can't wait for this day, a place where sin will be literally unthinkable to us. Sin will ultimately be undesirable to us. We, don't even, we won't even want it. A place of spiritual resurrection for our bodies. We're not just spiritual. As we've seen, we will be raised physically. The Bible envisions the eternal heaven as a place where we will eat and drink. The Lord's Supper, communion is a meal for a reason because it symbolizes the anticipation of a banquet in heaven. We even see Jesus in his resurrected body physically eating and drinking. And heaven is described in this way. So physically we'll eat and drink. We'll sing and shout. So physically we'll do these things. Our senses will enable us to experience our surroundings. John sees this vision in Revelation. All of his senses are involved here. Seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. We'll have senses that enable us to experience the new heaven and new earth around us. Our abilities will allow us to achieve our aspirations. Heaven is a place where we will have physical abilities that align with our natural aspirations. No physical disability or inability to do anything God has created us to do. As we've already discussed, when it comes to whether or not we'll be recognizable, Scripture teaches that our personality will be preserved. Our names are personally written in the book of life. Each of us personally welcomed at the table. This is, this is so important. Our personality will be preserved. Our humanity will be pure. We will be with him, like him, see him as he is. Everyone who, is this ho- who, who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Our bodies will be pleasing to the Lord physically. Our bodies will be pleasing to ourselves physically. And our bodies will be pleasing to others. So we raised spiritually, physically, mentally. Scripture teaches that our knowledge of God will always be true. First Corinthians says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, key thing here. When 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says that we shall know fully, this doesn't mean that in heaven all of a sudden we're going to become omniscient and know everything. So we're not going to become God when we get to heaven. Wayne Grudem writes, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 12 does not say that we'll be omniscient or know everything. Paul could have said that we will know all things ta panta in the Greek if he had wished to do so. But rightly translated, it simply says that we will know in a fuller and more intensive way, even as we have been known. That is without any error or misconceptions in our knowledge. So our knowledge of God, follow this, will always be true, but it will never be complete. It'll never be complete. In the words of Psalm 145, his greatness is unsearchable. Ephesians 2, the riches of his grace are immeasurable. Both of those passages make clear the greatness of God can be searched. The grace of God can be measured for millions and millions of years, but there'll still be more greatness to search and more grace to measure. God is infinitely great. God is infinitely gracious. And so, follow this. This is one of my favorite quotes from Stephen Sharnock's Discourse in the Eternity of God. It's quite a volume. Listen to what he says. When we enjoy God, I wish I had written this. When we enjoy God, we enjoy him in his eternity without any flux. Time is fluid, but eternity is stable. And after many ages, the joys will be as savory and satisfying as if they had been but that moment first tasted by our hungry appetites. When the glory of the Lord shall rise upon you, it shall be so far from ever setting that after millions of years are expired, as numerous as the sands on the seashore, the sun in the light of whose countenance you shall live shall be as bright as at the first appearance. He will be so far from ceasing to flow that he will flow as strong as full as at the first communication of himself in glory to the creature. God is always vigorous and flourishing. 
flourishing, a pure act of life, sparkling new and fresh rays of life and light to the creature, flourishing with a perpetual spring and contenting the most capacious desire, forming your interest, pleasure, and satisfaction with an infinite variety without any change or succession. He will have variety to increase delights and eternity to perpetuate them. This will be the fruit of the enjoyment of an infinite and eternal God. I'm just not smart enough to write that, but that, all of eternity. So a few billion years from now, there'll still be more delight to be found in God. Oh, if in pride we want to be equal to God in knowledge, this fact that our knowledge of God will never be complete will depress us. You mean you will never arrive? If in pride we want to be equal to God in knowledge, this will depress us. If in humility we want to enjoy God in heaven, this will delight us. Our knowledge of God will be true and ever-increasing. And so will our knowledge of the world. In heaven, our knowledge of the world will continually expand as we perpetually explore more and more and more of the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, contemplate the mental wonder of a resurrected body and a new heaven and a new earth. Raised spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. So think about our emotions, the seat of our affections. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. So when we delight ourselves in God, we find the desires of our heart fulfilled. The problem is in this world, we, our delight in God is imperfect. We have competing affections with our emotions. We're tempted to delight in things in this world other than God. And that affects us negatively, right? We're not always fulfilled in this world. We run after things of this world looking for fulfillment and they don't fulfill. But now consider heaven a place where we will perfectly delight in God. And in that place, all the desires of our heart will be fulfilled. Our feelings will be entirely enjoyable. Our cravings will be completely satisfied, just as Jesus promised. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Follow this. Hunger and thirst in heaven will not ultimately be quieted there. So when Scripture says in Revelation 7 here, that we won't hunger anymore, thirst anymore. That doesn't mean we won't want to eat or drink. Instead, it means you read further along that all of our hunger and all of our thirst will be unfailingly quenched. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Our desires will be totally fulfilled. Adoniram Judson, missionary to Burma, said, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. Oh, this is, this is so key. This is so different from worldviews like Buddhist worldview. The goal of Buddhism ultimately is the elimination of all desire. With Christianity, the exact opposite is true. The goal of Christianity is the gratification of all desire. Our desires will be totally fulfilled. Not only that, I love this. In heaven, our wants will be totally trustworthy. Think about this. We will want only what God wants. So we won't ever have to wonder if what we want is good, like we do in this world. Alcorn puts this, one of the greatest things about heaven is that we'll no longer have to battle our desires. They'll always be pure, attending their proper objects. We'll enjoy food without gluttony and eating disorders. We'll express admiration and affection without lust, fornication, or betrayal. Those simply won't exist. That's why C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia had Lucy saying, I've got a feeling we got to the country where everything is allowed. Yes. Finally, what Augustine talked about in the fourth century will be reality. Love God and do as you please. Oh, heaven, a place of final resurrection for our bodies, spiritually, physically, intellectually, emotionally, in every way, and relationally. Heaven is a place of future reunion with the church coming to the assembly of God's people, Hebrews chapter 12. A place of reunion where we will recognize one another, just as Peter recognized John, Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah in Matthew 17, where we're clined at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, this whole picture and you've got quotes there based on 1 Thessalonians 4 from J.C. Ryle and Amy Carmichael about how, yes, we will joyfully recognize one another in the new heaven and the new earth. And we will love one another as the overflow of perfected love for God. 
We're going to be a family before our Father as brothers and sisters and mothers and children. We'll be a bride with our Savior. All right, now here we are. We've already talked about the imagery of heaven as a bride joined together with a bridegroom. So let's pause at this point and ask, will there be marriage in heaven? And the Bible answers that with a, what do you think, yes or no? Yes and no. So you're both right and both wrong. So, no, there will not be marriage in heaven in the sense of the earthly signpost. So Jesus makes clear in Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 20. Sons of this age marrying are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So clearly, there will be no marriage in heaven in the sense of an earthly signpost. And I put it that way because the purpose of marriage in this earth is to be a signpost that points to marriage in heaven. So yes, there will be marriage in heaven in the sense of the eternal destination. Remember what the Bible teaches in Ephesians 5. God created marriage for a purpose as an illustration of Christ's love for his church and a groom's love for his bride. Marriage on earth is intended to be a signpost that points to Christ's love for his church. So once we get to heaven and that marriage between Christ and his bride is complete, Christ's relationship with his people continue completely restored and the earthly signpost is no longer necessary. Now, for some married couples, that may be even almost disappointing. The thought of being separated from your husband or your wife doesn't sound appealing. But don't picture heaven as a place of separation from your wife or your husband. If your wife or husband is a follower of Christ, then you're going to be reunited with each other in a greater way than you ever were on this earth. On this earth, there was sin in your relationship with your spouse. In heaven, there will be no sin in your relationship with that person. So, if you were best of friends with somebody here, for example, in marriage or otherwise, then don't think when you get to heaven, that's going to somehow be lessened. It's only going to get better. But this earthly institution called marriage simply won't be necessary in that relationship. Well then, some might ask, and here it is. Will there be sex in heaven? Yes or no? Yes and no. Now you've caught on, all right? Yes and no. So the answer here is yes, there will be sex in heaven in the sense of gender uniqueness. So God created people as male and female in Genesis 1. It's a compliment to one another in Genesis 2. And Scripture gives us no evidence that all of a sudden we become hermaphrodites upon entrance into heaven. That's not biblical. After all, when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead as a man. So God saves and redeems and resurrects us as men and women, brothers and sisters. So yes, there will be sex in heaven in the sense of sexuality, gender uniqueness. But no, there will not be sex in heaven in the sense of marital union. Sex, as in sexual intercourse, is designed by God for pleasure and procreation in marriage. First Corinthians, and since there will be no marriage and no procreation for that matter in heaven, there will be no sex. Now, some people hear that and are disappointed, thinking, I thought sex was a good gift from God, so why would he withhold this good gift in a perfect place like heaven? And that is a valid question, because sex is a good gift from God, just as marriage is. But just like we saw with marriage, as great as marriage is in this world, its intent is to point to something even better. So in a similar way, the gift of sex and marriage is intended to point to a joyous union that's even greater in heaven. And remember, heaven is a place where all of our desires will be totally fulfilled. We're not talking about a situation here where we're going to be having a frustrated desire in any way. Some people think, well, it's human to have sex, and I thought we'd be perfectly human. But that kind of thinking takes sex as good and turns it into sex as God. No one has to have sex in order to be fully human. If that were the case, then Jesus himself was not fully human. And all of this, we need to realize that in not including sex in heaven, God knows what he's doing. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. 
on receiving the answer no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain you would tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He doesn't know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Huh. So, chocolates won't matter. <laughs> Promise. So in heaven, we'll be a family for our Father, a bride with our Savior. We'll be a people from every nation with diverse ethnicities. We'll be ancestry from every generation. Oh, just imagine. Oh, every Christian friend that goes before us from this world, a ransomed spirit waiting to welcome us in heaven. Oh, this reunion. Now, right after that, Jonathan Edwards says, there will be the infinite of days that we've lost below through grace to be found above. And I put here the question because I think it's important to at least address briefly. What about infants who have died? Will they be in heaven? And obviously, this is a hugely emotional question. Here's an important question for many families I know who are listening right now. have experienced the death of a child, maybe even in a miscarriage or multiple miscarriages. What happens to infants who have died? And much like we talked about with those who, who uh, have never heard of the gospel, we don't have a place in Scripture where Jesus says, so you may wonder this, and here's the answer. But Scripture does speak to this with truths in different places. So here's my exhortations to you based on that question. One, revere. God is merciful, righteous, and good. In the words of Genesis 18, the judge of the earth will do what is right and just without question. And you look, not just right, but he's merciful. Matthew 18 makes clear that Jesus and the Father love children and are especially merciful to children. And as we've seen, 2 Peter 3.9, God desires all to be saved. So this is not universalism, again, doesn't mean that all people everywhere will be saved, but God's character here, bring God's character to bear on this question. He's right and merciful toward judge. He's right and just, merciful toward children, and he desires other, all salvation. Start with reverence for God. Second, recognize the Bible expresses confidence that believers will see young children after death. Confidence. Second Samuel 19, when David's infant son dies, David concludes, end of that paragraph, why should I fast? Can I bring him back to him? Again, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So David expresses confidence that when he goes to heaven, he will go to his son. So recognize that the Bible expresses confidence that believers will see young children after death. Revere, recognize, then reflect. The Bible holds young children to a different measure of accountability before God. Now, this doesn't mean that young children are born sinless in some way. That's certainly not what the Bible teaches. But when Romans 1 talks about the sinfulness of man, it talks about those who rebel against God. And Romans 2 talks about those who have a knowledge of right and wrong written on our hearts that we know we've transgressed. And that's how we understand the gospel. We know we've sinned against God and therefore our, we understand our need for a Savior. So there has to be, in order to understand our need for a Savior, some sense of state of moral awareness to even understand the gospel. And it's interesting, when you go back in Scripture to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 34 through 39, and you see God's people held accountable for their sin in the desert, not going to be able to go into the promised land, but what you'll notice is the children are not held accountable for that sin in the same way that their parents are. You look at Deuteronomy 1, 34 through 39, you can read through the whole thing, but you get to the very end, it says, as for your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So you see this reference to little ones who don't have knowledge of good and evil. They will be held to a different measure of accountability. And they, like they, they were held to a different measure of accountability here in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Now what's the line between these little ones who are held accountable and aren't held accountable and those who are? That's not specified. So we're not sure. But we know that even these little ones, though born in sin in this world, were not held accountable for sin in the same way that their parents were. 
which leads to the next exhortation. Remember, the only way for sinful mankind, including children born with a sinful nature, to be saved is by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In other words, nobody gets a pass on their sinful nature before God. Christ is the only way to be restored to God. So you put all that together and you realize we can only go to heaven through Christ. Children are held to a different measure of accountability before God. The Bible expresses confidence that children who die go to heaven. And the Bible teaches that God is not only just and right, but particularly loving and merciful toward children. Based on all that, I think we have good reason for confidence that children who die are eternally safe in the arms of Jesus. Then, even as we think about heaven, another question people wonder, well, what about loved ones who are in hell? In other words, will it be ha- possible for us to be happy in heaven when you know that some people you know and love are in hell? And obviously that is an intensely emotional question, one that I really can't even begin to comprehend when I think about people in my own life. But Scripture clearly speaks of people in heaven praising God even for His justice in condemning sinners. Revelation 15. O Lord God, greater are your amazing deeds. O Lord God, the mighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. This is happening as God is pouring out his justice. I'm not going to presume to understand this completely, but I, I really can't improve on the words of J.I. Packer. God the Father, who now pleads with mankind to accept the reconciliation that Christ's death secured for all. And God the Son, our appointed judge, who wept over Jerusalem, will in a final judgment express wrath and administer judgment against rebellious humans. God's holy righteousness will hereby be revealed. God will be doing the right thing, vindicating himself at last against all who have defied him. Read through those passages. You'll see that clearly. God will judge justly, and all angels, saints, and martyrs will praise him for it. So it seems inescapable that we shall with them approve the judgment of persons, rebels, whom we have known and loved. I don't pretend that's not heavy, but I believe it's biblical. Heaven is a place of future reunion with the church. And heaven is a place of complete restoration of creation. So just like we talked about, this isn't just resurrection and renewal and restoration for us, but for all creation. Heaven is a place of physical reality. Just as Eden was, we talked about new earth. So the new earth will be. Heaven is a place of visual beauty. You look at these pictures in Revelation 21, 22, you've got beautiful images of heaven, visual beauty. Randy Alcorn said, look at God's track record in creating natural wonders in this universe. On Mars, the volcano Olympus Mons rises 79,000 feet, nearly three times higher than Mount Everest. The base of Olympus Mons is 370 miles across. We cover the entire state of Nebraska. The Vallis Marineris is a vast canyon that stretches one-sixth of the way around Mars. It's 2,800 miles long, 370 miles wide, and four and a half miles deep. Hundreds of our Grand Canyons could fit inside it, and the New Earth may have more spectacular features than these. That's imagination. Just think, having a place of visual beauty— a place of natural harmony. Harmony not only between man and God, man and man, and man together, but man and creation. Harmony. As we've talked about, having a place of continual worship. Now, when we think about the restoration of creation, people often ask, what about animals? So all dogs who are listening, tune in. What does the Bible teach about animals? And specifically, animals in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, go back to the beginning of Scripture and realize animals were created good by God. Genesis 1 and 2. Created good by God. You look at descriptions of animals in the book of Job, Psalm 104, you realize that animals are created to reveal the glory of God. You get to Psalm 148, you see a picture of all creatures, including animals, being exhorted to praise God. So animals are created by God as good for God and His glory. Genesis 2. Reiterated in Psalm 8, animals were placed under the authority of man, under His dominion. But then animals were affected by the fall of man. After sin entered the world, God took the skin of an animal i.e. bad news for that particular animal, and clothed Adam and Eve. And the effects of sin 
infuse the rest of the created order after that, to the point where Romans 8 talks about creation longing for redemption. Animals certainly included in that created order. Romans 8, then after sin in the world, God determined to flood the earth. What did God do with animals? He spared animals in that flood. Animals were spared in the flood of the old earth. It's interesting that God took care not just to save a family of people, but two of every animal, Genesis 6, Genesis 9. So then, we're not surprised when we see that Scripture seems to teach that animals will be included in the restoration of the new earth. Isaiah 11 envisions the restoration of creation. The new heaven and the new earth says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, we need to be careful here when we think about this, not to equate the restoration of sinful humans, resurrection of sinful humans, with the restoration of animals, resurrection of animals, because the Bible doesn't look at them the same at all. The Bible gives no evidence that certain dogs or cats or cows or fish that die in this world will be resurrected from the dead. So will all dogs go to heaven? Will your dog go to heaven? Scripture does not specifically indicate that it will. And remember that Jesus did not die for animals in the same way that he died for humans. We're created in the image of God. We've sinned against God. We need his redemption. Animals not created in the image of God, and they don't sin in a way that necessitates an animal redeemer. At the same time, animals generally are a part of the created order. And as a result, it's part of creation that is longing for recreation and restoration. So how that's going to happen, not certain i.e., what animals would be restored, how would they be restored. Scripture does not speak to that. But Scripture does speak to animals' inclusion in the restoration of the new earth. Now, one other thing. The text there in Isaiah 11 seems to envision a new earth with no human or animal predation, which is also is what we just read in Isaiah 11. It's there in Isaiah 65. So you put that together and you realize if there's no human or animal predation, then that means animals will not die, which consequently seems to indicate a new earth where we will likely eat a lot of vegetation. I'm not absolutely 100% certain, but it does seem like we will not be eating steak and seafood in the new heaven and the new earth. Heaven, not paleo. So, <laughs> moving on from animals. That's, all right, we're, in, we're, in, we're, we're speculating now. Imagination, okay? What about the sun, moon, and stars? Isaiah and Revelation, when they... For see heaven, they envision a place where the sun will be no more. City has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Night will be no more. Need no light of lamp or sun. At the same time, we know from the beginning that God created the sun as light and the moon for darkness. And neither of them are evil. That was the picture before sin entered the world. So it would not be surprising for us to see a physical, literal sun or moon or planets or stars. Based on what the Bible teaches, at the very least, we would say the presence of God will so shadow, overshadow everything that a sun or moon would not be necessary. But that doesn't mean for sure they won't be there. What about the sea? The Bible says in Revelation, the sea, 21, the sea will be no more. At the same time, Isaiah 60 envisions peoples and wealth coming from the sea by way of the sea. Again, much like the sun, moon, and the stars, we don't really know. The picture of no sea in Revelation 21 is intended to be taken literally or symbolically. All throughout Revelation, sea is symbolic of evil, so it wouldn't be surprising for Revelation 21 so it would be a description of man's separation from God. Now there's no need for that because he's restored to God. Or it may be literal. There may be no sea. What about weather? What about lightning and thunder and rain and snow? Well, a lot like we saw with animals in the book of Job, God creates and he sends weather like this for his glory. The weather is a display of his glory. So we wouldn't be surprised to see demonstration of his glory in a new heaven and new earth. But obviously we know that even amidst lightning or thunder, wind, rain, or snow, no one would be hurt by these elements. So you got a creative quote there in imagination from Randy Alcorn. Some of these things we don't know, but what we do know is that heaven is a place of complete restoration of creation. And not just that. Finally, heaven is a place of comprehensive redemption of culture. Again, a purpose of the Bible 
It's not to give us specific details about everything in heaven to satisfy all our curiosity, but just imagine how all the good elements of creation will be totally restored by God and how that will affect all the good elements of culture, music and the arts, totally redeemed and perfectly used for the glory of God. What a great day. When music and arts, writing and storytelling. Psalm 145 tells about telling stories of God's works. Will there not just be the greatest stories to tell and hear in heaven from saints throughout history about the works of God? Like over and over, we got time to talk about these stories. Storytelling. Imagine the complete redemption of drama and entertainment. C.S. Lewis wrote of Narnia, and there was greeting and kissing and handshaking and old jokes revived. You've no idea how good an old joke sounds after you take it out again after a rest of five or six hundred years. <laughs> Drama and entertainment, inventing and building. Even when we see description of heaven, there's gates and walls and foundations, all pointing the possibility at least of inventing and building and creating in heaven. Imagine the redemption of trade and business, work to the glory of God. Imagine the redemption of sports and recreation. Will there be sports in heaven? It certainly seems that sports are a good grift created by God, given to us, much like arts, entertainment. Sports all throughout the New Testament are described as illustrations of the Christian life, avenues through which we glorify God. Remember Eric Liddell's famous quote from Chariots of Fire? He made me fast. God made me fast. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. To give up running would be to hold Him in contempt. Imagine the redemption of sports and creation. Maybe I'll finally be the baseball player I always dreamed I'd be. I'd be a jacket out of the park. Maybe. Maybe. Imagination. Imagination. Imagine the redemption of travel and exploration in a new heaven and a new earth. Alcorn writes, okay, we're clearly in imagination here, but just think. Skydiving without a parachute. Maybe. Maybe not. Scuba diving without an air tank. I hope so. We'll be able, we will Will we be able to tolerate diving to depths of hundreds of feet without special equipment? We know that our resurrection bodies will be superior. Won't it be fantastic to test their limits and to invent new technologies that extend our ability to explore and enjoy God in the mighty realms He makes? Those who know God and believe His promise of bodily resurrection can dream great dreams. One day we will live those dreams. So, again, in our imagination, we don't want to fly away from truth, but upon truth. And Scripture gives us truth to imagine much upon a good and gracious God who delights in giving good gifts to His children. What? does this good God have in store for those he loves to enjoy him forever and ever and ever? Heaven anticipate. We long for a new earth, don't we? A new earth where we will exalt God's glory continually as we enjoy God's gifts eternally. We'll exalt as we enjoy with God. Uh, I love Packer. Hearts on earth may say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end, but invariably it does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go in forever, and it will. There's no better news than this. We long for a new earth, and so we live on this earth with a commitment to holiness. This is the way the Bible talks about hope in heaven, with a commitment to holiness and our purity, turning aside from the fleeting pleasures of sin because we know we've got a better possession with our possessions, knowing we're not storing up treasures on earth, but in heaven, in heaven, for one purpose. We want to take people with us there, don't we? So we give our lives, this is why we're not there yet. We've got a purpose here to bring people with us. It's the point. So we live on this earth with a commitment to holiness, with confidence amidst hardship, knowing that this world is not all there is. And the worst of days and the most difficult times remind us that we're looking forward to another home. Not this earth, but a new earth and a new heaven where we will be with God. Emmanuel, God with us. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.